0: Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at Mazda of South This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins on the Local News Roundup. More changes could be coming to NOTA following the $10 million sale of the building housing the neighborhood theater. City Council considers a new development near South Park that has the approval of residents living on the property, but not necessarily their neighbors. Problems continue in Gaston County involving a new payroll system that is wreaking havoc on teachers. The North Carolina House votes to change pistol permit requirements, and Alex Murdoch, the prominent South Carolina attorney, on trial for murdering his wife and son takes the stand in a trial getting national attention here to talk about those stories and many more is wfae education reporter and Doss helms welcome to you good morning good morning wfae's political reporter steve harrison is also with us good morning to you good morning nick oxner is chief investigative reporter and executive producer of investigations at wbtv good morning
1: Good morning, happy
0: Friday. I I noticed that you say in the in the in the messages here that it's the, the first day of spring, but that's not really true. It's just for you, right? Biology
2: says spring. Yeah, there already. you
0: go. And and Joe Bruno is here, sitting in the conference room. Uh, he is a he's a reporter at WSOC TV. Joe, welcome. Hello, Mike. So let's begin with something that's not necessarily local, but it kind of is because it affects at least two of the people on our panel. We've had 83 mass shootings since the start of this year. The most recent involved a little girl, her mother, and two Central Florida TV journalists working for Spectrum down there who were shot on Wednesday afternoon near the scene of a fatal shooting earlier in the day. Police near Orlando, Florida apprehended and detained a 19-year-old they believe, was involved in both shootings. So allegedly, he returned to the scene of the earlier crime where two reporters had set up to do, I guess, a stand-up. He shot the two reporters, then walked to a nearby house, shot the uh, mother and daughter, one of the reporters, and the five uh, and the uh, nine-year-old girl died. I'm just curious about this because I've often thought about this, gentlemen. Uh, reporters go to dangerous places all the time. This happened in broad daylight, but many times you're out doing a stand-up after dark. Yours is the only light in the area because it's like a beacon of light for the camera. How concerned are you and our reporters like you about your safety?
3: Yeah, uh, it's a really tough story. It really breaks my heart. Um, this is a journalist who was really just starting out his career. And this is a situation that I find myself in and my colleagues are in on a daily basis. Um, it's he was in his car he was preparing for the broadcast it was four o'clock maybe he pitched this story maybe he was assigned it but i i just know he was probably in his car preparing to go live Uh, maybe he was working on his web story or looking for story ideas for the next day when he was ambushed he and his partner his photographer Uh, he was in an unmarked car he was he probably didn't expect that he wasn't in a safe area because this is like I said this is a situation that we are in every single day it's broad daylight Uh, you're just focused on doing your report and Stuart Pittman uh, the chief photographer at Queen City News put it really well when he said that you know when you're just sitting there with a camera a deadline and a story you feel invincible Almost, you feel like you have the power of the press behind you, and you can't be touched. And this is a real wake-up call that um, you know sometimes bad things can happen. And there. what I hope people take away from this is that you know what what he was doing was the epitome of local news. It's why so many of us get into this business is to cover stories like the one he was assigned that day. It's, it's a story that impact the neighborhood, it impacts the whole community. He was covering a homicide. He was just doing his job, letting people know what happened in that situation when he unfortunately became part of the story. So I hope that people can walk away with this with a deeper appreciation for local journalists and um, certainly his whole team and his family uh, are in
0: my purse. The media uh, has been under political attack in the last six or seven years. This had nothing to do with politics. This was just a bad actor in, in, the, in the wrong place at the wrong time and it's unclear as to whether or not he targeted those people sitting in that vehicle. But as WRAL TV's Laura Leslie pointed out in a tweet following that shooting in Florida, I don't know that we can say that they didn't feel at risk, meaning the reporters, it's different now than it was four to five years ago. The risks are greater, and I know our crews can feel it. Nick, do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think so. But here's the the thing about this incident. Uh, just piggybacking a little bit on Joe, these were a team of reporters, right? A reporter and a photographer, a team of journalists Both in the their end. car. It's not just a, a what we call a MMJ a multimedia who or one man band who sometimes go out and works on their own. They were at a scene with other reporters where you might feel safe. This was at the, the height of what a daily field crew might feel in terms of being safe. Uh, and and this is actually the, the safest compared to what a lot of local TV reporters do every day where they are, Mike, as you said, by themselves. Um, in places where people don't want them there, whether that's an emotional crime scene, whether that's a political rally, and yet we go do that every day um, to, to use and protect and further the aims of the First Amendment just something I think we all in this business take seriously.
0: Well, uh, our thoughts, as you said, thoughts and prayers are with those two uh, people who lost their lives and their families. Uh, Both of those journalists, as you pointed out, were very young and at the very beginnings of their careers. And uh, this sends a a bad message to everybody in the business. Uh, For those who have not lived here long, Noda began to emerge as a kind of funky alternative area of town back in the 90s. Lots of art galleries and coffee shops and the like. And when it caught on, of course, developers arrived. Uh, and changed the nature of the neighborhood. A lot of those businesses got uh, pushed out. But the neighborhood theater and some other businesses in in that strip that the neighborhood theater occupies at 36th and and Davidson, uh, they've been holdouts. Well, now property records show that a Nashville company development firm has bought the block that the theater occupies, along with some other businesses, for $10 million. How have people in those areas or in that area reacted to that, Joe? Joe?
3: I think when people saw that the properties are changing hands, they were a little worried because we've seen this story play over and over again in other parts of our city. Um, But the investor group that purchased the property did do a release statement to the Charlotte Business Journal saying they have no plans to change this strip. They want to invest in it. They said neighborhood theater. And um, Salude, which is a James Beard-nominated bar now, are, are big reasons why they wanted to purchase this property and that uh, they are part of the long-term plans for it.
0: And, in fact, the Neighborhood Theater, which is the landmark business, I guess the old second oldest business in that strip would be Bedro's, the, uh, the, the Cajun restaurant. Uh, they put out a, a post on their Facebook page, the Neighborhood Theater did, that said, stay calm. This will be the fourth change in landlords since the venue opened over 25 years ago, and we've survived. And as you pointed out, Stream Realty Partners, which represents the seller, uh, says the new owners will maintain the authentic use of neighborhood theater as a storied piece of our city's history. This is The Prime Intersection in that neighborhood does it really make sense to keep that or does it make more sense to put up a multi-story apartment complex with retail on the first floor
3: and live next to what i mean this is nota like, this is this this, this stretch is nota so what you're going to knock it down and build stuff for people to live like, next to a couple buildings? like no no you i'm just saying trip. i know i know <laughs> um and it, w- I, I really don't understand why properties like this change hands uh what the incentive is but um the if they got, get rid of these uh, tenants, it's a huge mistake because, like I said, these represent everything that's great with NOTA.
0: Okay. Charlotte City Council is uh, looking at uh, a major new development on a nine-acre site near South Park that's currently occupied by a condominium complex that was built, what, 30, 40, 50 years ago, I guess. Uh, usually when something like this comes up, the residents living in those developments are against the change Not in this case. In fact, the people living in those condos are in favor of this change. Why?
3: It's a weird situation um, where they want out of their property. They, They don't feel like they're being displaced by this development. They want it to happen because they want to get out of these homes. They say that they're too hard to maintain, and I guess they had a uh condo association-wide vote on whether they should proceed with the sale or not and uh they did so the group that purchased uh this condo complex did so for 48 million dollars uh for the 100 or so owners of these properties I'm sure they'll get a cut of that when they when if this rezoning is allowed to be approved but they want out they're 55 year old units they say that they're too hard to keep up with and uh something's got to change
0: uh, dozens of those residents, at the, the project, the complex is called, is called Trianon now, uh, and dozens of them all wearing green shirts, I'm not sure why green, but they all showed up at city council in a bus to talk about uh, what led them to this point. They say current conditions uh, are now causing residents problems.
1: Unfortunately, our aging infrastructure creates both a physical and financial burden, making it difficult for us to stay long term.
0: Trey resident to uh, Taylor, now a developer called Related, wants to build hundreds of apartments with retail and restaurants. But that has some residents of nearby Barkley Downs concerned about the project being too big, too tall, too close, too dense, too much traffic. Barkley Downs residents, Mark Roberts.
2: Those shirts should have dollar signs on them because that's the real message. They need your vote.
0: Mm. Again, Trianon residents were wearing these green shirts uh, at the council meeting, but they have a different view. And resident Abriel, Abriel Taylor, put it this way. They selected the developer related over high priced bids because of the quality of the work that they do.
1: Our community chose related a developer that would build something special and not just a standard apartment project while still being considerate of the neighboring residences.
0: So this is up. To, is this up still up to council to do this or is this a yeah. done deal? And how did the council react, Steve?
3: It's one of the last uh, sure. rezoning petitions that city council will vote on since uh, before the UDO takes effect in June. Um, they seem a little on the fence. I think there are some concerns over whether this really aligns with the 2040 plan and whether this development fits in this part of South Park. Looking at renderings, it kind of looks like to me the Barnes and Noble development or, or the um, uh, Piedmont Row, I think it's called, where Malpon is uh, in Peppervine. Um, those are that—that's th- the feel that I get—a live, work, play type situation from this.
0: And that's right down the street. That the Barnes and Noble development is right down the street from the uh, complex that you're talking about here. So I'm I'm wondering how that would not fit in with the area. That's exactly what's in the area.
3: Yeah, there's worries about building height, traffic, of course, it's two competing South Park neighborhood groups against each other and uh, Councilman Bakari has been looking into this a lot and it it seems like right now Bakari would vote no because of uh, concerns about um, how this really, what kind of precedent is set by this, Uh, but you know it's early and I'm sure they'll all be looking for a win-win.
0: As I think you pointed out, uh, the residents of that complex arrived in a bus, which is a first, I think, to come and be part of of the meeting. How many people spoke out against this?
3: Uh, Ambriel was the only – oh, I'm sorry. There was one person in favor, one person against it, but there were several people who arrived with them. Much more um, people in favor of this project than opposed to it, at least present in the government center on Monday night.
0: And given that it's not St. Patrick's Day, the the, per, the, the purpose of the green shirts was? Uh, you
3: know, it looks good. They look <laughs> good on camera. You know, they stick out amongst the beige in the government center chamber. Uh, not sure how green was selected.
0: <laughs> okay, so when will council make a decision on this project?
3: It could be as soon as next month, but I have a feeling this one will take a little longer because the both sides seem pretty far apart right
0: now. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about all the goings on at County Commission. We had several commissioners on this program this week talking about property tax and the revaluation uh they they've also named a building after a former member of the county commission and we have a heck of a lot to talk about with regard to education and not just at cms all over the state in fact when it comes to the school calendar and the goings-on in gaston county stay with us it's the local news roundup on charlotte talks on 90.7 wfae Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks at the local news roundup on 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. And Doss Helms is here. He's, she's WFAE's education reporter. Steve Harrison our, our political reporter here at WFAE News. Nick Oxner joins us from WBTV and Joe Bruno from WSOC TV. The Mecklenburg County Commission has been putting the finishing touches on the 2024 budget and setting priorities that include reducing housing insecurity, increasing early childhood development opportunities, and more. But what everyone is wondering about, of course, is what will happen as a result of the annual or the every four-year evaluation that they're going through right now and what will that will do to property taxes we had board chair George Dunlop on the program on Wednesday along with commissioners Mark Jarrell and Pat Cotham. Commissioner Dunlop says that staying the reven- staying revenue neutral in other words, taking whatever they decide the property's value is worth but keeping the taxes the same will not support the services the county residents want and Pat Cotham had a slightly different opinion.
4: I I am not for um, an increase, and I mean I'd probably be happy if we decreased it some, um, but I'm not for that. But you know, it's also very early. We have to listen to our manager and and get all the information.
0: And District Four Commissioner Mark Jarrell is concerned about the impact of raising property taxes and its impact on lower income folks and on gentrification.
1: Um, when we talk
0: about reval, it's hard to separate
1: the impact of gentrification on communities of color and and different folks in this community. Uh, We've got this issue of corporate landlords. We have so much that we're trying to tackle
0: right now. People are screaming uh, for different services, particularly as it relates to behavioral health, environmental justice. And experts have said that higher property taxes will more adversely impact those who have lower value properties than those whose properties are in the more affluent areas of town. Steve, can you explain why that would be the case?
1: Yeah. Just because the, the biggest percent property value increase, uh, maybe not the biggest dollar amount, but the biggest percentage increase is happening in lower income areas that were homes maybe were undervalued for many, many years. And now people are investing them, investing there. So those, those property values are going rapidly. So even if you kept a revenue neutral tax rate, um, the, the kind of burden of who pays is going to shift a little more toward lower income areas. That's going to happen. Regardless if you put a property tax increase on top of that, like the County did in 2019, it's a double
0: whammy. And and the city also levies property taxes, if I'm not mistaken, and they're going through the same rock and a hard place decision. Given both the County's concerns about uh, equity and the city's concerns about that, what is likely to happen here? And are there any remedies if they have to raise taxes for those who are least able to afford it? There
1: are city and I believe city and county programs, Joe, I think correct me if I'm wrong, but that are designed for homeowners uh, to, you know, to stay in their homes if the property tax burden becomes too much. Um, I believe those are targeted towards seniors. Um, so there's that bit of relief but again most people that's not most people and so you, you know we're hearing talk from the city that they could also do a property tax increase this year so we could have both parts of your tax bill go up um which hasn't happened in a long, long time.
0: And and although renters don't pay property taxes on the, the real estate they're living in, it can be reflected when the lease runs out and they have to sign a new lease. And, and there's concerns about that because even the price of rental properties are, is becoming prohibitively expensive for a lot of folks. Uh, We also know that the County Commission and the Charlotte Mecklenburg School Board have had a rocky relationship in recent years. As we all know, George Dunlap got into a verbal skirmish with school board chair Elise Dashew about tying funding to academic success in the past. And uh, Pat Cotham has said that the school board has not communicated with the County Commission very well. Though Dunlap said on this program that the relationship is improving. But next week, they have to consider the board's re- proposed $3-plus 1000000000 bond request for new, new school construction and other projects. Any idea of what their reaction may be?
4: Well, I noticed on your show that um, A, both Pat and George, who have been very vocal critics of the school board, voiced some optimism. They talked about the fact that there are five new members on the board and that they or at least feel like those board members are open to communicating with them. Uh, George Dunlap said he and Elise Dashu have met more times in the past year than they had in the previous four or five. I get the sense that actually the two of them work pretty well together, but there is often a difference on how much money ought to be coming in the direction of CMS. And he seemed to kind of waffle on an amount. Everybody has been pretty consistent in saying the county has not laid down a cap for CMS and said, we will not go beyond this point. But the point they've been talking about in their planning is $2.5 billion. And the point that CMS is going to look at Tuesday night, may or may not vote for it, is just barely shy of $3 billion. So I'm sure you will see CMS come in and make the case for these needs and how much it means to the community to have up-to-date schools with great learning environments and safety and all of that. And I... Hope that what we'll hear from Dina Oreo and her staff is some talk about what this would mean in terms of taxes, because any amount that they're looking at, the, the most this county has ever done is just shy of $1 billion. So it's but, almost certainly going to be well beyond that. So but, in the past, it when,
0: when, it, when they have uh, uh, talked about bonds, they always say that the bonds don't affect taxes. That's not true.
4: It's not directly tied. It's not it's not like a sales tax where you say we want you to approve a one cent sales tax increase for this, but it is long term borrowing and it gets factored into the county budget. So, you know, it's kind of like putting something on your credit card, you're gonna have to pay for it at some point and it's going to become part of your budgets going forward for a lot of years.
0: County Commission this week also voted unanimously to name the county's newest government building after former County Commissioner Ella Scarborough, who died last May. Here's how Commissioner Mark Jarrell explained it.
1: We have the opportunity to do something in honor of somebody who was um, not only a colleague, but the living embodiment of a public servant. And um, I can't think of a better way to honor her,
0: uh, her legacy, and her memory. Joe, you reported on this. What new building will have her name?
3: It will be the Northeast Community Resource Center that is going to house the Health and Human Services operations for Mecklenburg County when it opens. Um, It's over there off of North Tryon and Eastway. So there will be a public hearing on March 7th, and after that, it will basically be official.
0: And Steve, uh, for those people who have not lived here long, put, put Ella Scarborough into some sort of context. She was a trailblazer
1: that's right yeah she was and i believe joe help me out here she was the first um at large african-american woman elected to charlotte city council i believe is that that's right correct. first yes. black and, woman
3: elected to charlotte city yeah. Council. and
1: um uh, so you know a long history of public service um and uh just respected and beloved in the community and then um You know, continued. I mean, I think her last election for Mecklenburg County Commission at large, she received more votes than anyone else. Um, And so, uh, you know, kind of a fitting, fitting way to to honor her. Yeah,
0: she served ten years on City Council and eight on County Commission. So she she put the work in. So let us cross the Catawba for a couple of minutes here and go into Gaston County with an update on a story that has been unfolding for at least a year or more, Gaston County Schools payroll problem. and
4: what has been going on there? So this started as the least controversial thing in public education. Uh, in, I think it was 2017, the General Assembly said, hey, we want schools to modernize their business and finance systems. We're going to provide some money for it. The Department of Public Instruction uh, set up what they called master service agreements with two companies, um, Oracle Cloud and Tyler Muniz. All of this is a total snooze fest, right? Nobody covered it. Nobody cared. Um, it's <laughs> technology. And Gaston County jumped right in because they had an outdated business system. And they started working. They said, we're going to go with Oracle. They started working with a state team. They had to postpone their launch twice because they knew they were hitting some snags. Finally, everybody said, woohoo, we're good. We're ready to go. January of last year, they rolled it out. And it did not go well. There have been massive problems with people getting overpaid, people getting underpaid. They're taking not getting paid at all. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean not forever, but you miss a paycheck here. You miss it's just been really inconsistent and unpredictable. They've been taking retirement payments out of employees' paychecks and it's been super slow getting them processed into the retirement system. They're still like four or five months behind. So, you know. And I would admit, the first time they told me about this again, I was like, this is kind of dull, but this has become just a massive thing because it's gone on so long.
0: And because it has human consequences. It's a nightmare for some of the people being directly affected by this. Second-year Pinewood Elementary teacher Melissa Goddard broke into tears at a recent Gaston School Board meeting uh, as she described her experience in trying to collect pay due her from last year.
4: I have called, emailed, and gone in person to try to get this resolved, and I've been more than patient. How do you expect teachers this day, especially new ones?
0: And she is not alone. Here's Laura Farmer, who retired from teaching in March, started working as a substitute, and has experienced multiple problems getting her pay and deductions straightened out.
4: The taxpayers in this county should be furious. I am. Trust is gone, hope is gone.
0: So this has been going on for a long time. And the company they switched to for the payroll and Oracle, Oracle Cloud, certainly handles payroll for other businesses and institutions. So why are they having a problem with the Gaston County schools?
4: You know, I don't know that for sure. And for the record, I'm one of those Gaston County taxpayers, and I, I certainly wonder what's going on here. And the response to it has been kind of baffling to me. I mean, everybody the the school board agrees this is a big problem, and they keep saying, oh, we we really feel for you, we're trying to help you, but they had, this is at least the second meeting that they've had about this. The superintendent didn't speak at all. I found that kind of astonishing that the superintendent would not speak to something. One of the board members said, you know, this there's casting a cloud over all the good things you've done for the district. Uh, the state has been kind of every time I inquire, they send emails that basically say, oh, things are getting better. And to be clear, they are getting better. The problems are not occurring. New problems are not occurring at as large a level as they were early on. Uh, but new problems are still occurring and they still haven't fixed some of the old problems. So this And is we, just- are,
0: we are approaching tax time. Uh, and some employees are getting W-2s based on under- Or overpayments that happened months ago have never been corrected, and that is also causing major headaches for teachers like Elizabeth Haywood, who teaches at uh, Costner Elementary. She was overpaid last year and is now expected to pay income tax on the money that she has been trying to return.
2: I am happy to repay the funds. I have the funds and am ready to repay it, but I feel like I am getting no help in doing so.
0: Wow. Gaston County Schools uh, Chief Financial Officer Gary Hoskins says he has about 500 unresolved issues. That's down from 1,834 in the first nine months of last year. The ongoing payrolls over the last several months have been much cleaner. What we're trying to do is catch up on all the stuff that went wrong back in 2022. But he also acknowledged ongoing widespread problems with retirement payments and payroll deductions. Why has this been, did he have any explanation for why this has been so difficult?
2: Well, here's the problem, Mike. This, like Ann said, this problem has been known since January of last year. We started covering this, and other outlets started covering this more than a year ago now, but for at least the first six months of last year, the response from the school district was, there's no problem. We've fixed everything. Everything's been ironed out, and it really took, uh, things really came to a head Last fall, when you saw the state treasurer get involved because it affects retirement systems, when the district finally came out and said, "Yeah, we did really mess up. We've set up this hotline. There are big problems. We're trying to work through them," but for for months, like half a year probably, Gaston County Schools officials largely stuck their head in the sand and said everything's great, even though it clearly wasn't.
0: And if you're not getting paid, that's a major problem. If you're getting overpaid, you owe taxes on the overpayment, as that last teacher was expressing, which is a problem, because you're going to have to pay more in taxes than you actually owe. And if your retirement contributions are not being processed in a timely manner, you are potentially losing money because they're not being invested for months on end. So will Oracle be held responsible or liable in any way for these problems, or are these problems going to be blamed on the school system or the county, and are they liable?
4: You know, there have, there's have there been a lot of finger-pointing. They've been, you know, the state ought to do this. You know, there has been a little bit of reference from the county to, you know, maybe we need to start holding our staff accountable, but you also had, you know, the board chair saying, they're, they're just doing great with this. You know, even Elon Musk couldn't figure this out. I don't know why the state is not jumping into this, even if they say it's not their fault, because, again, this is not Gaston County went off on its own. This is something that they are offering to the entire state, and they have not answered my questions about additional adoptions. But Gary Hoskins from Gaston County said, oh, by the way, the Department of Public Instruction is going to launch this in the fall, you know? I hope it works better for them than it does for Gaston County. It's it's just been kind of baffling that everybody's just kind of sitting there going, man, this, this sure is. And, you know, you talked about the reasons. One reason they have cited is short staffing, that they they have vacancies in their finance and payroll departments. And I'm thinking, you know, over in Mecklenburg County, the Charlotte Executive Leadership Council has sent a dozen executives on loan to CMS for a year, you know, pay their salary, let them work for CMS. As a last resort, you know, does the Gaston County business community have some folks who could swoop in and say, we're going to help you get this straightened out? Because, again, if you can't get or keep good teachers, that's not an internal matter. That's a matter that hurts the whole county.
0: And Elon Musk could figure this out. He would fire all the teachers and sell the furniture. Uh, There have been moves (laughs) by several area school systems to change their school calendars despite being against state law. And now the legislature is moving toward allowing individual districts to create their own calendars. The House recently voted 111 to (laughs) 2 to allow schools to start as early as August 11th. Have there been any takers?
4: Uh, it is not approved yet. It's not. there actually have been takers. There are people that are doing it without doing it already, permission. Yeah. And the key here is that every year there are bills like this. There are local bills that cover a handful of districts. There's actually a statewide one that would do this. And there is bipartisan support for it, but there is not Phil Berger support for it. So and, and what the happens systems... every year is this crashes against the Senate.
0: The systems that want this say it will shorten the summer break and that will help uh, advancement, educational advancement. Executive Director of CMS Government Affairs Policy and Board Services Charles Jeter told WSOC-TV changing their calendar would improve student test scores.
4: We think it has an impact on the scores. I mean, this data shows that, you know, students who take these exams before winter break have higher scores.
0: And he also mentioned another benefit.
4: CMS's specific request is let us marry up with the community colleges, which would be re- roughly around August 15th. House Bill 106 is still a local bill because it doesn't impact more than 15 counties. So if it passes the Senate, it's law. It does not. The governor has no say on local bill.
0: School, though, is only one part of life, and that was pointed out by CMS parent Josh Bays, particularly when it comes to summer break. Depending on when he's due back in school, uh, that definitely plays
2: a part in that based on his uh, his, his time over the summer uh, and when he starts, you know, we, uh, we have family reunions, things like that. A lot of those are held over the summer.
0: Now, we know that Elise Dashu and other members of the school board are in favor of starting earlier. Are, are they likely to if this becomes law? and quickly, about 10 seconds.
4: I don't know if they'd change for this year, but I think if this law is changed, you will see a massive change.
0: Okay, we have to take a break. Come back with more. Stay with us at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on the local news roundup on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. And Doss Helms, WFAE's education reporter, joins us along with our political reporter, Steve Harrison. Nick Oxner's here from WBTV and Joe Bruno from WSOC-TV. Very quickly, and CMS has begun their search for a permanent superintendent. They've hired a consultant. They were hoping to have one named by April. Now they've moved it off to May. Why?
4: Uh, You know, if you've ever said, I'm going to get X amount of work done in a day, and you realize it's not realistic, that's kind of what they did. They came out with this super, if we work every minute, including through spring break, we think this is going to happen. And their consultants basically said, you know, take a deep breath. A, we want to go back and we want to do a better job of reaching some people who are not reached during the public engagement session. We're doing that to create the job description that will help us, you know, screen candidates. They want to have the full board do two rounds of interviews. And they kind of said, you know, is it realistic to ask all board members and the staff that we need to work, cancel their vacation plans and work through spring break? Maybe not. So this is not a big deal. This is not, you know, not like when they postponed it for months. This is just a, a slight delay to May.
0: So, Nick, uh, as you well know, uh, CMS has been plagued with allegations of sexual misconduct uh, on the part of students. We had that rape trial that we just wrapped up that you spent a lot of time investigating the, follow, the, the, the lead up to. And now a mother of a five-year-old at CMS, a five-year-old, called WBTV to report her daughter being sexually assaulted on a school bus When did she allege that the assault took place and why did she call WBTV?
2: Well, let's start with the last question. She called WBTV, she told me, because she had reported what her daughter told her to both school officials and police a week earlier, and they had functionally done nothing. Uh, What this mother um, says is that her daughter came, you know, she picked her daughter up from daycare after school where the bus drops her off at, And she reported um, being physically and sexually assaulted by two other elementary school boys on a school bus. This is uh, a bus taking kids to Croft Community School. Uh, This was, uh, the girl told her mother on February 6th, the mother reported it to school administrators and police on February 7th, and took the little girl to the hospital to have a sexual assault evaluation because she said her daughter was experiencing some lingering injuries. Uh, I have the school documents where where the principal says that they'll take um, some kind of accommodating measures to help the girl feel comfortable when she gets back on the bus. Those, by the way, are required by the federal law known as Title IX, uh, including giving the girl a bus buddy and sitting her near the bus driver. But none of that happened when she got back on the bus. Instead, that little girl was sat right back next to one of the boys that she reported attacking her.
0: So these are all underage, well underage, children involved on both sides of the equation. What should the police response have been and what should we expect from CMS?
2: Well, so what happened, the police um, opened an investigation. They scheduled an appointment for the girl uh, at Pat's place for a forensic sexual assault evaluation. That's all what should happen, and that's that move correctly. What you know, the, the breakdown here again was with Charlotte Mecklenburg schools who tell, failed to take those supporting measures that they said they would take. And Mike, the reason that this is outside of the age and the, the the just sheer yet again mishandling of yet another reported sexual assault from Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, this comes just weeks after the fairly new interim superintendent, Dr. Crystal Hill, touted improvements that she said the district had made in handling Title IX and reported sexual assault. Before being appointed interim superintendent, Dr. Hill was the chief of staff where improving Title IX was under her purview. That was one of her things she was charged to do. And So she has a lot of experience here. And she says the district went from two Title IX staffers to 11 Title IX staffers. She said they're all properly trained. Dr. Hill touted that they were improving and making sure every school administrator is properly trained. Despite all of that, this happened again, and you have a five-year-old girl reported being sexually assaulted on a school bus by two boys sitting right back next to one of the boys she says assaulted her the next time she gets on the bus. And we've gotten no explanation from Dr. Hill, no explanation from any board member. The district, in a statement, said that they don't have to take any protective measures that are unduly burdensome.
0: Hmm. Well, we'll keep following that, I because I know you will keep following that story as we go through the next couple of weeks. Uh, the North Carolina House voted on Wednesday afternoon to toss out a longstanding requirement that handgun buyers first obtain a permit from a county sheriff. But Democrats have real problems with that, uh, and they expressed that uh, yesterday on this program. Democratic State Senator Mushtaba Mohammed. It's gonna create a massive loophole in private sales of guns. So Mike, if I were to sell you my gun, I would not have to do a, any type of background check on you at all. And there's also a question about whether a federal background check would have particular information that sheriffs are likely to have surrounding domestic violence disputes. So there's the Senate bill. Does it, it does something similar. Uh, so what happens next to these two bills, Steve? What happens? Where's the go?
1: Well, yeah, it, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting is in the House vote, it was a total party line vote. So no Democrats moved over to, to vote with the Republicans, which is something we have seen throughout this legislative session so far. Um, you know, the Republicans say that that by and large, this is a redundant bill. Conservatives have pointed out that this the pistol permit requirement for sheriffs was passed in 1919 as kind of a Jim Crow era uh legislation to make it harder for african americans to get guns that's their view they say it's redundant it's not necessary but like i said before we haven't had any democrats yet cross over so this may be kind of end up in the same position as 2021 when when governor cooper vetoed similar similar legislation
0: because he said he would veto it and because they lack a supermajority in the house by one vote democrats would have to cross the aisle and you're saying it's unlikely that they will
1: yeah, I mean, it hasn't happened yet. I think the vote was, uh, there were a few people absent, but it was 67 to 48. And so the numbers just aren't there at the moment.
0: In a trial that is getting national attention, it's all over the air. There are several documentaries, uh, multi-part documentaries airing on various outlets. South Carolina attorney Alex Murdoch took the stand yesterday and admitted that he has been lying about his whereabouts on the night of the murder of his wife and youngest son, murders that he has been charged with committing, crimes that he has previously denied and continues to deny committing. Why did he open his testimony by admitting that he'd lied to law enforcement? Who's been watching this?
2: Well, if you're a defense attorney, the best strategy to get ahead of bad facts for your client is to get them out first. So better to admit you lied about just about everything uh, to your lawyer instead of to the prosecutor who's going to cross-examine you
0: later. So preemptive strike. His defense attorneys made a point of saying that he chose to take the stand. Is that something that we should take notice of? Does that mean he overruled his attorneys that they think he shouldn't have taken the stand?
2: It seems pretty clear that he took the stand despite his attorneys very much not wanting him to. It's notable, Mike, that so far, um I guess the trials resumed this morning but so far until all yesterday uh prosecutors spent two hours really focusing on questions about Murdoch's uh finances and financial alleged financial crimes um and and his lawyers Murdoch's lawyers had tried to get a judge to exclude prosecutors from being able to ask about those because remember he's facing a bunch of other charges related to that stuff that he'll go on trial for later um and, and so I think there were lots of reasons why his lawyers were uncomfortable with him testifying, but it seems pretty clear that he wanted to anyways. And so here we are.
0: The reason this is getting national attention is because it's such a bizarre story that has so many different layers. It's like peeling back an onion and every time you do, there's a body. Uh, uh, it, and although you, you couldn't have written this as a, as a legitimate movie, it will become one now because it's based in facts. And as you pointed out, for two hours yesterday, the prosecutors grilled him on crimes that are not part of the murder trial, on financial crimes, to which he said he did. He, com- he admitted freely that he committed all of them, that he stole from clients, he stole from his uh, law firm, things that he shouldn't have done. Those are crimes that are waiting for him in another trial. He's just admitted to all of it. What does that mean for the other trial there won't be one will there i guess
2: it'll be pretty quick won't it
0: so is the calculation here then that i'm going to go to jail either for murder or for financial crimes so i might as well go to jail for financial crimes because the term will be shorter and leave a shred of doubt in the minds of one juror therefore i'll get off from the murder trial is that the calculation you think
2: maybe but you know here again (laughs) he also has now admitted to lying about the last time he saw his wife and son before they were killed he admitted that on the stand yesterday too and frankly that seems to be the most damning piece of evidence um, that you know that has come out from this from this case uh and i don't know that that was definitive i think prosecutor done a good job raising the specter that he was lying about it but that wasn't definitive until he admitted to lying about it yesterday under oath.
0: Yeah. Well, this shall be very interesting in the next several days. Uh, Three months have passed since the 11-year-old Madalena Kojicari was last seen up in uh, uh, Huntersville. She disappeared just before Thanksgiving. Her parents did not inform police until 22 days later. Next week, actually, it's not Huntersville, it's Cornelius. This Cornelius couple, Diana Kojicari and Christopher Palmiter, the girl's mother and stepfather, are due in court. Why? What will, what will they be facing in that hearing?
3: I believe it could be an administrative court proceeding based on their failure to report Madalena missing. So the court proceeding next week could be pretty quick, and I'm not sure if we'll learn a whole lot from it. But it is the next step in the process. Uh,
0: in a previous hearing, bond was set, I think, at two hundred and two hundred fifty thousand dollars each. But to the best of my knowledge, they remain in jail. Is that correct? That's correct. Is that likely to change as a result of this hearing next week?
3: That remains to be seen. I think that they'll probably remain in jail, though, for the definite future.
0: Okay. There's been very little information since the attack in December, December 3rd, on the Moore County, North Carolina power substation that knocked out power there for about three days. But new details are emerging about how the case is being handled by law enforcement. What have we learned?
3: We um we still have not heard directly from police on this case. No press conferences, no media availability. We did talk to the mayor, um, Woody Washam, who says that they've received 400, 500 tips. They've so looked at them all. They just haven't found the right tip just yet to connect the dots on what exactly happened to Madalena. They are still operating as if Madalena is alive, and it is their goal to find her that way.
0: No, no, no. We're talking about Moore County's power station.
3: I apologize. I apologize. (laughs) Let me get to Moore County. That's a different case. Um, Yes, let's keep up. Moore County is a mess. Um, So uh, Madison Carter, our reporter, and Mike Stolp did a records request. And sometimes when you get records requests back, uh, nothing of note comes up in them. But this one had a treasure trove of information that uh, really just showed an uncoordinated response uh, following this attack on these substations uh the, the the shows that moore county was confused by a camera they didn't know how uh one was put up and it turned out to be duke energy's camera uh that we got emails back saying that the fbi still had the shell casings they haven't made their way to the state crime lab And Moore County, you're supposed to, the new policy is if you see someone near a substation, you're supposed to go check it out and see what's happening. And a Moore County deputy drove right by our reporter and photographer at the scene, made eye contact with them, and kept going. So uh, there's a lot of issues with uh, the investigation right now. It doesn't look like they're close to making any uh, uh, solving this one.
0: I do have to say those, those little short naps are great. Uh, the FBI uh, did ask Google for uh, geofencing data, which can identify where cell phones are in the area within a certain specific amount of time. They also issued warrants for similar information from T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon. Do we know about whatever data they received?
3: To my knowledge, uh, they haven't received any data back that is helpful uh, for this investigation based on the records that we have in our hands.
0: Okay. Uh, If you are moving to South Carolina or considering a move to South Carolina, it's going to cost you. Legislators are considering a bill. They're calling the Yankee tax. Uh, What would it do, uh, Nick, and who would be affected by it?
2: Not unmute fast enough. I thought Mr. Bruto was going to take this Oh, election. I'm sorry. I, I could Joe? take it as a Yankee. Go ahead.
3: Um, so,
0: <laughs> see, Nick was the, taking uh, a short nap too, but just <laughs> go ahead.
3: <laughs> I'm never going to live that one down. I'm so sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> as for the Yankees, the um, proposal is a flat fee basically for um, people who move into South Carolina. It's called the Yankee Bill, but if you move from Louisiana or Florida, you, you would be impacted by it as well. It's a it's a $500 total one-time fee for new driver's licenses and vehicle registration. That is the proposal.
0: So clearly this is an attempt to increase revenues. Are enough people moving there that it makes it worth doing this?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, South Carolina is exploding with gro- growth, especially right. the counties in our viewing and listening areas. I mean, you just heard about uh, Fort Mill School District having to take some action. I believe it was Fort Mill School District about, um, you know, just because their schools are bursting at the seams. It's kind of just like an impact fee uh, that South Carolina already has. It's another way for them to capitalize on all the people who are uh, moving to the state.
0: We have 30 seconds left, and Wendy wanted me to talk about snow. It's been uh, 430 days since Charlotte got any snow. It was January 21st, 2022, and uh, we've had zero snowless winters since 1878. This could be one of them. Uh, it's warm today, really warm today, and so people are asking, when's it going to snow? I ask, does anybody want it to snow? I mean, really. So I'm going to poll you, yes or no, each of you. and do you want it to snow?
4: Yes, Quick. but not, not right now.
0: Uh, that's all I need, yes or no. Steve?
1: Absolutely.
4: Yes.
0: Joe. No. uh, Nick. (laughs) No. Okay. So we have divided the panel here. Andos Helms and Steve Harrison from WFAE, Nick Oxner from WBTV, Joe Bloom from WSOC. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com.